Hello, good afternoon. Welcome back to Grounds. I hope you all are having a wonderful reunions weekend so far. There should be more of you, anyway. <laughs> so today we are going to learn about Mr. President's University, how UVA's effort to revive presidential studies with Barbara Perry and Bill Anthelis, who are seated right here. Before I uh, introduce your speakers, could we just please have you sil silence your cell phones? That would be appreciated. Also, you should have received an evaluation form when you came in this afternoon. It's orange. If you'll please fill that out after the talk, that will help us plan next year's activities. I also would like to say that both of our speakers this afternoon are UVA grads, and in fact, it is both of their reunions year this weekend. So we are very, very excited that they have joined us for the talk instead of <laughs> wandering about grounds. <laughs> <laughs> So on behalf of Lifetime Learning in partnership with the Alumni Association, I would like to thank our speakers for volunteering their time today. First up will be Barbara Perry. Barbara is the White Burkett Miller Professor of Ethics and Institutions at the University of Virginia's Miller Center, where she is Director of Presidential Studies and Co-Chair of the Presidential Oral History Program. She is also the Project Director of the Edward M. Kennedy Oral History Project. Our second speaker is William Anthelis who is the director and CEO at the Miller Center. He has decades of government, nonprofit, and academic experience. Most recently, Anthelus served as managing director of the Brookings Institution, a nonprofit research organization where he managed five research programs, more than 400 employees, four offices, and multiple university partnerships. During his tenure, Brookings was named top 10 think tank in the world and top, no, I'm sorry, not top 10, top think tank in the world and <laughs> top think tank in the United States, eight years in a row by the University of Pennsylvania's Think Tank and Civil Society Program. Will you please join me in welcoming our speakers? Thank you, Joy, and great to see everybody here, particularly my fraternity brothers and their wives and uh, friends who make up almost half the audience here. So that's a, <laughs> Uh, that's a real blessing. I, I wish I could be in shorts and t-shirts, um, and so next year we're going to do it that way. What I thought I'd do is give you all an, in, an overview of who we are and what we're doing, and we're going to focus on a big project that we're undertaking, and there are flyers. If you didn't get one on the way in, get one on the way out that give a nice overview that UVA's Central Communications Office did for us. The Miller Center has been around for 40 years, so it was here when we were undergrads. I was introduced to it by uh, Innes Claude, who taught in the politics department. And then when I was in my PhD program, I received a Miller Center Fellowship, which was a great excuse to come back to Charlottesville for two years and live on a farm. And uh, in the 17 years that I've lived in Charlottesville, um, when commuting up to Washington, I would often go to Miller Center events. It was sort of a home away from, uh, a home at home for me in, in this world. Barbara directs presidential studies at the Miller Center, as Joy was explaining, which is really composed of five different uh, undertakings, the two biggest of which is our oral history program where we've done the official oral history for every president since Jimmy Carter. And we've been transcribing the secret Oval Office recordings of the Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon administrations, and Barbara will talk about that. We have two other, um, three other things that we do uh, in presidential studies. We um, host a website that has information on every president, um, and it gets five million unique viewers a year, which is really quite a resource. Uh, we have a lecture series called the Historical Presidency Series, and we work with the presidential libraries and homes to collect their archives um, and connect them to one another. So it's a, it's a very powerful undertaking with some unique assets. And what I wanted to do uh, with Barbara today is we're going to talk about 
one of our signature projects, our signature project for the next few years that pulls not just those five uh, presidential programs together, but our wider set of scholars, scholarship, and activities on public policy uh, together into one common forward-facing project. And so I'm gonna take you and show you a quick overview video and talk about the project and then hand it over to Barbara um, to talk about one particular dimension. An extraordinary democratic moment occurs with the peaceful transfer of executive power in America. Thomas Jefferson in his first inaugural address referred to the presidency as a post above his talents. Jefferson humbled himself before the magnitude of the undertaking. It takes one year for a new president to go from here History teaches us a president's first year in office is crucial, a time of dangerous peril and exceptional opportunity. In South Mogadishu, the problem for UN forces has been controlling the street. The president was hit. He was wounded. God. The real world tests the untested commander-in-chief, and the new president must act. It is also when presidents can enact their enduring policies. The Civil Rights Act of 1964. Whether renewing America's promise at home, or making historic breakthroughs on the world stage. As Inauguration Day 2017 approaches, our responsibility is to look beyond, to prepare for the new president's pivotal first year in office. How will our 45th president staff a cabinet, prioritize an agenda, and act on it? What risks and rewards dwell on the horizon? The Miller Center has launched a nonpartisan effort to research those pressing challenges and to take those ideas directly to the presidential candidates and their staffs, to opinion leaders, and to the public at large. The first year project illuminates the major issue areas, featuring public events, digital components, and vigorous promotion and communication strategies. We are connecting history with policy and impact. President Truman on the line, sir. Hello? How are you feeling? I'm feeling pretty good. How are you? Oh, I'm having hell. What's the trouble? Well, I got a little bit in the Congress, and a little bit with the Indochina, uh, the Vietnamese, and <laughs> a little bit all over the country, and I just thought I'd call you and try to get a little advice and a little inspiration. The Miller Center specializes in studying the institution of the presidency. We apply the lessons of history to contemporary public policy challenges, helping to understand and shape the modern presidency. 
Our scholars have conducted comprehensive oral histories for every administration since President Carter, creating a living network of the most senior officials who have led our executive branch. The Miller Center brings the lessons of history to life and connects the past to the future. So you'll see this, uh, this video points you to our website, and we've developed a special website just for this project, which is uh, the first year website. Um, and Barbara's going to come and talk to you about it. You know, when I was an undergrad here, uh, Larry Savito was my advisor, and he taught me the importance of presidential elections, and I think there's one going on right now. And what we're trying to focus on is, uh, is what happens after the president gets elected. The most exciting year is not necessarily not necessarily the, the year of the presidential election, as exciting as this one has been and will be, uh, but what happens in their first year. And so Barbara's going to talk a little bit about that and the real strength of our, the archives that she and her colleagues have built, our scholars themselves, and this network and how they come together in her work. And then I'll, I'll point forward in a few things, and, and Barbara will help uh, close before we go to questions. Well, thank you, Bill, and thank you to Joy and uh, Jen and everyone in the engagement uh, community office for putting this together today, and welcome back, uh, all of you Wahoos, uh, and particularly if, like Bill and myself, you're celebrating a, a particularly uh, happy occasion. I'm, I'm not going to say how many years my reunion year is, so um, congratulations and welcome back to Grounds and to Mr. Jefferson's University. Um, so Bill mentioned, and as did the video, and I don't know about you, but no matter how many times I see that video, it gives me chills. And I think part of it is that as Americans, we've lived through a good portion of that history. And so when we see Andy Card whispering in George W. Bush's ear on that day in that classroom in Florida on 9-11, 2001, it brings those memories flooding back. Um, but it also brings amazing memories now for me because in one of our main programs that Bill mentioned, our Presidential Oral History Program, uh, this, this very week, last year, I was sitting in Andy Card's office uh, at the uh, Franklin Pierce University in Ringe, New Hampshire, where Andy is the uh, current president of that small liberal arts college. Uh, I must say, out in the wilds of New Hampshire. Uh, so it took us a while to get there. But uh, he spent uh, over two days with us, talking to us and sharing his memories of his uh, six years as the chief of staff to George W. Bush, Bush 43, as we call him, uh, and the fact that he was there on 9-11 and then was with the president throughout uh, in those hours. Now, all of our oral histories until we release them are confidential because we want to get the most uh, accurate information and the unvarnished truth from these people. So we, we tell them, at least for the first few years, we hold on to these very closely and, and they are confidential. But the reason these oral histories are so important, and as Bill said, the Miller Center has been doing them uh, since the, actually the, the Gerald Ford administration. So we have a great photograph at the Miller Center that has a very young-looking Dick Cheney, uh, Don Rumsfeld, Brent Scowcroft, Herb Stein, who came down from Washington just after the, the defeat of uh, Gerald Ford, uh, after the inauguration of Jimmy Carter. And we started the oral history process then with the Gerald Ford administration, have done every president, so that's covering six presidencies over a third of a century. And you might say, well, how did the Miller Center come to do this? Doesn't the government do that, or don't the presidential libraries do that? The presidential libraries did 
these oral histories for a while in conjunction with the National Archives, but it became too expensive a proposition and there was some fear that in doing them in conjunction with the libraries or having them based in the libraries, they might not be as objective as possible. So these came to the Miller Center happily, these projects. We are strictly nonpartisan, uh, so we take all comers, all presidents, no matter what their party. Uh, and because we had set the gold standard for doing presidential oral history, uh, a UVA law alumnus, uh, Senator Edward Kennedy, came to us in the early 2000s and asked if we would uh, actually do his oral history. So at that time, he had been in the Senate 40 years. Uh, we didn't know that his time on this earth was a bit limited at that moment, but we ended up doing 29 interviews with him. Uh, those cover 10 presidencies. So he served in those 47 years in the Senate under 10 presidents, starting with his brother uh, and going all the way through uh, Obama. Uh, so now we have released uh, the Jimmy Carter oral history, the, um, uh, the Ronald Reagan oral history, the Bush 41 oral history. Uh, we recently released the Clinton Project. Uh, we put out books on these. They're all on our website. So every single interview that's been released, now including most of Teddy Kennedy's 29, as well as the nearly 300 other interviews as part of that project, are all on our website. So I wanted to share with you, as Bill said, we, we just have this vast store of, of archives that we mine every day um, for these materials. And, an, and another reason that as we do these oral histories, almost as soon as the president leaves office, we start because we know the actuarial uh, statistics show that people won't be here forever and we don't want memories to dim, so we try to get these projects started as soon as possible. The other reason that they're so important is that you, you can say, well, what about the documents? And we have historian colleagues who'll say, well, I focus on the presidential documents. I want to know what the words say on the papers that were written. The problem with using those is that Oftentimes, they're top secret, so they're not open to the public. And second, it takes about 20, 30, 40, 50 years for even the non-confidential materials to come out in document form. Uh, the Bush 41 Library, for example, in Texas uh, estimates that they can only process about 2% of President Bush's papers every year. So we fill in the gaps uh, in the interim, but we also feel as though all of these stories are puzzles and that we have a major piece of that puzzle by using these oral histories. So let me drop a piece of the puzzle in for you. Uh, today. So this is from the Jimmy Carter interview that was done uh, in the early 80s down in Plains, Georgia with a team from the Miller Center. I was not there then, I should add. Um, and this is what Jimmy Carter said, and see if this, I was almost here. <laughs> um, so you're not supposed to give away my date, Bill. Uh, so let me read this to you. It's a little paragraph from Jimmy Carter's oral history, and see if there is something that's ringing true to you about one of the candidates who's running this time. This is what Jimmy Carter said about coming to Washington. I was experienced as a governor. He had been governor of Georgia. I think I did a good job as governor, Carter said. I did a lot of innovative things, all of which have stood the test of time. So I took that experience to Washington, and there were at least two remarkable differences. One was that the Washington environment was much more of a major factor than was the Atlanta environment on a comparative basis. I could ignore the people in Atlanta who were the social, business, and media leaders, if I so chose, with relative impunity and deal primarily with the members of the legislature. 
There was much more isolated relationship between the legislative and executive branch on the one hand and the general public and the news media on the other than was the case in Washington where the lobbyists and the law firms and the news media leaders in particular, the columnists and others, were such an important element of government in Washington. And I underestimated that. I don't think there's any doubt about it. It didn't take long for us to realize that the underestimation existed, but by that time, we were not able to repair that mistake. So there's Jimmy Carter looking back over a one-term presidency, uh, what many people viewed at the time and even to this day as a failed presidency, and some of those failures come immediately in the first year because he's an outsider. He's elected as an outsider in 1976 because the people wanted an outsider, because of the Watergate scandal. Uh, and Gerald Ford was, was tied to that by virtue of having pardoned Richard Nixon. And here Jimmy Carter came from Georgia, a born-again Christian, uh, saying, I will never lie to the American people. But he looks back shortly after being defeated and leaving office and saying, here was the mistake. I was an outsider and I didn't look ahead to see how I needed to deal with Congress, how I needed to deal with the lobbyists, how I needed to deal with the Washington media community. And so I think he's being very honest and forthright in saying this was a mistake, and it was one from which he, by his own admission, never recovered. So let me say just a word or two now about our recordings program. So Bill mentioned that uh, we cover uh, presidents in the modern era, particularly through this project. Uh, every president, starting with Franklin Roosevelt, as soon as the technology developed in order to tape record at that time, began recording conversations. Now you can imagine in the FDR era it was very primitive technology and so there are very few of those uh, recordings. The presidents who recorded the most are John F. Kennedy, starting with the Cuban Missile Crisis. So you can go to our website and you can listen to John F. Kennedy in real time debating with his advisors uh, about what should we do about the missiles that are aimed at the United States, the Soviet missiles that are aimed at us in, in, from Cuba, 90 miles off our shore. Uh, Richard Nixon obviously also did tapes, and he was the last president for obvious reasons to tape. And in between was Lyndon Johnson, who recorded the most uh, tapes of, of any of the presidents, both meetings and phone conversations. And so we clipped out a bit of those, uh, as you heard, with Harry Truman. So he called up Harry Truman uh, to say, you know, give me some advice, give me, bolster my spirits, I'm, I'm a bit down. There are a lot of things that are, that are really getting to me. For Kennedy, in the midst of the Cuban Missile Crisis, Kennedy called former President Eisenhower and asked the, the former Supreme Allied Commander, the five-star general, you know, Kennedy had been in the military in World War II, he'd been a Lieutenant JG in the South Pacific, so he was skippering a PT boat. Uh, so he calls the fi former five-star general, former President Eisenhower, and says, what, what should we do? You know, what should we do, General? And Ike gives him instructions, and we think that Kennedy in part followed that. Um, but I also wanted to mention to you from the Lyndon Johnson tapes, um, how many of you were able to see on HBO recently the, the movie All the Way? Anybody see? Oh, good. Excellent. Um, I was actually able to see that uh, when it was premiered on Broadway with Brian Cranston playing LBJ. And if you saw it there, you saw it on HBO recently, or if you haven't, we highly recommend it. Uh, Brian Cranston channels Lyndon Johnson. You would think that you are listening and seeing, listening to and seeing Lyndon Johnson. Um, so there's a, a very many portions of that script that are actually lifted from the Lyndon Johnson tapes that the Miller Center has 
edited and painstakingly annotated and analyzed. So we were really pleased to see that it's, that, that kind of material is being pushed out into the, the public bloodstream. But I also wanted to share then just a, a brief anecdote before we go back to Bill about Lyndon Johnson uh, reaching out to Everett Dirksen in 1964, and the movie All the Way was primarily about Lyndon Johnson's first year uh, as the new president succeeding to John Kennedy after his assassination. By the way, our Miller Center staff and researchers have now looked at every single first year of every president, and some presidents have more than one first year. Lyndon Johnson is an example. We went back and looked at the first year of his first time as president, so November 63, and then he's elected in his own right, so we count that as another first year. But the All the Way movie focuses on 1964 and his efforts to push through what becomes the Civil Rights Act of 64. That legislation had been introduced by John F. Kennedy and Robert Kennedy through the Justice Department in the summer of 1963, but it had bogged down. It's unclear whether it would have been passed if Kennedy had lived, but Johnson, a few days after the assassination, went before Congress and said, uh, nothing would honor our fallen president more than to pass the civil rights legislation that he had introduced. So it's in May, picture May of 1964, and I tell you, when I listen to this phone conversation, if you type in on our website or just go to Google and type in Lyndon Johnson and Everett Dirksen, up will pop the, uh, the actual conversation. It's a brief one. It just lasts a little over a minute. But it makes me nostalgic uh, for the good old days of the 1960s when you could have a liberal Democratic president calling a moderate Republican. Everett Dirksen was from Illinois. He was at that time the minority leader of the Senate. And Johnson, as only Johnson could, twist arms even over the, the telephone with his uh, charm, uh, says to Dirksen, now, how, how are you doing up there? Are you going to get this bill through? And Dirksen says, well, we're trying, Mr. President, but you know, some of the Southern Democrats are making it tough. But I, I think we can work with the Democrats on, who are more liberal, for example, Hubert Humphrey. And Johnson says, well, Listen, we want this to be not a Democratic bill. We want this to be an American bill, or as in his accent, an American. I want this to be an American bill. And Dirksen says, well, Mr. President, we're doing everything we can on our side of the aisle to help it through. And then Johnson really turns on the charm, and he says, you know, you're from, from Illinois. And he says, you're the, you're the modern Lincoln. You're going to be the, the current-day Lincoln from Illinois because your name is going to be behind this bill when it passes. And then Johnson says, and I'm going to do everything I can to see that people understand the important role that you played in getting this bill passed. That was in May of 64. Johnson signed the bill at the White House on July the 2nd, 1964, and Everett Dirksen and the moderate Republican support was crucial, again, in, in concert with the, the liberal Democrats, uh, to try to overcome the Southern segregationist uh, in the Congress at that time. Um, so with that, I'll turn things back over to Bill. Well, you can see why we're really lucky to have Barbara as the head of presidential studies. Um, she and her colleagues are now pulling together a pretty comprehensive research agenda on the presidency, which we hope will animate um, a multi-year effort to understand a wide number of dimensions of the presidency. So in a sense, the first year project is really just a, a, first, uh, a first couple innings on that. And so I want to show two short films that show the two dimensions of the first year and think of these as a first year of our taking on a bigger set of challenges through a presidential lens. 
What Barbara and her colleagues will be doing is essentially taking their expertise on these presidents and pitching it forward on how to address some of the big challenges in the 21st century presidency. So on the domestic side, The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. To pledge to each other all that is best in our lives, all that gives meaning to them for the sake of this, our beloved and blessed land. All are equal, all are free, and all deserve a chance to pursue their full measure of happiness. There is tremendous momentum coming off an election. The American people have spoken. Congress is at its most receptive. Federal workers await a new direction. Our next president must harness this goodwill or risk squandering the nation's best opportunity to break the gridlock, an opportunity that only arises once every four years. And the clock starts running on day one. So why is the first year so important? Past administrations have learned the hard way that Washington slows down after the new president's first year in office. Congressional elections begin to dominate Capitol Hill. Bipartisan goodwill morphs into discord. The American people who expect results become disillusioned and turn away. To break this cycle, time is of the essence. A successful president will hit certain marks during the first year, choose a cabinet, confirm department deputies, set an agenda, and get it done. History shows that successful presidents learn to balance the competing demands of politics and management. Politically, the president must choose. Does he or she pursue the agenda that energized the party faithful? Or does the president embrace the pragmatic concerns of centrists in both parties? And then there is management, understanding the scale of the federal government. Two and a half million civilians and more than a million in uniform who serve Uncle Sam at home and around the world. Latest Fox polls find 65% of Americans say the government is broken. Decade Continuing of pessimism. deep pessimism Divided. across this Trouble. country. Deteriorating. Today, a vast majority of Americans believe our system is broken. America's next president will take over this political apparatus and immediately attempt to get the wheels of government turning again. Head of state and party leader, the president who synchronizes these dual roles in the first year can restore movement and function to a modern American government. Guided by lessons of the past, he or she leads the country forward once again towards a more perfect union, a more perfect new order for the ages. So actually, if you leave the lights down, what I want to do is just show you on, on every two months or so, um, we come up with a new set of essays. Think of it as an online magazine on a particular topic that previous presidents have tried to tackle in their first year 
and that the next president may t try to tackle. So just in the last few weeks, we released four essays, five essays on immigration, a fairly timely topic and perhaps central to one or two of the, president's, uh, the current presidential candidates. And what we've done is for, for that particular topic, um, launch these essays, and you can come to them and look at the essays or to a, a stream of blogs or other activities that are constantly circulating on the essay on the website on a more timely daily basis. They include polls, they include um, reaching back into presidential history on one thing or another. Uh, for each of the presidents, books and articles that have been written about their first years, uh, their inaugural addresses, things like that, pulling forward a lot of this material. So we've so far released five different volumes of essays. We'll be releasing them every two months right up through election day and well into the first year. So on the domestic policy side, you just saw uh, the first video focuses really on that domestic process, working with the Congress to get things done. We did a set of essays on uh, fiscal policy. Where's my, my mouse? There we go. Looking at previous uh, first attempts to do first budgets. Uh, in presidential history, there have been eight financial crises that have hit in first years. How different presidents in the past have acted either overreacted or rightly acted uh, in response to a financial crisis. And then we've done um, a series of essays, and we'll have many more, on national security in the first year. And let me just show you these, show you this. Every American president inherits a world filled with dangers and challenges, the wars and revolutions that shape history. Our most successful presidents have used American power to build a more deeply integrated world economy and an expanding coalition of democratic nations. History also tells us that the new president will likely face a major national security crisis within the first year of taking office. Some crises come because presidents inherit policies they don't fully understand and staff are learning to work together. President John F. Kennedy blundered into a failed invasion of the Bay of Pigs in Cuba. President George H.W. Bush's national security team failed to anticipate a coup attempt in Panama. In President Bill Clinton's first year, a humanitarian mission collapsed after Somali rebels shot down two U.S. military helicopters. One of his advisors called it our Bay of Pigs. Other presidents find that America's adversaries want to test a new administration's inexperience. Terrorists first targeted the World Trade Center in Bill Clinton's first year. Al-Qaeda struck again eight years later in George W. Bush's first year. The next administration will take office during an especially challenging moment in American history. The new White House must manage threats from the ominous expansion of the Islamic State, the deepening turmoil generated by multiple ongoing wars in the Middle East, the resurgence of an aggrieved and aggressive Russia, the rise of a powerful, capable, and confident China. The challenge for the next president is to remain commander-in-chief, not reactor-in-chief. 
How can he or she prepare for the inevitable first-year crisis? The new president must articulate a clear and coherent national security strategy, assemble a team of strategic-minded advisors who trust one another, stand ready to resolve differences among advisors, implement an initial agenda to signal U.S. leadership in world affairs, understand that sometimes taking no action is the wisest course. How the new Commander-in-Chief both preempts and responds to crises will define the new President's approach to world leadership. But in looking forward, he or she will be wise first to look back. So uh, before turning it back to Barbara, just one thing, the audience for this project, it's obviously the general public. Uh, one of the reasons for the videos is we want wide accessibility. We'll be promoting them aggressively, including advertising during the upcoming uh, uh, political conventions, uh, and then during the transition after Election Day. But in particular, we're really focusing on essentially educating the incoming administration. And that extends all the way up to the president, him or herself, um, to their senior advisors, many of whom will have been there before, but this is a good refresher course. But really, in some ways, the target audience are the 30-somethings to, to 45 and 50-somethings who may or may not have been there before and uh, may see their particular element that they're given responsibility for, but don't have the chance sometimes to take a step back and see how it was done in previous administrations. So we have already started briefing uh, both campaigns. That's a big deal. We've met with the, with the Clinton campaign and we'll be meeting with the Trump campaign. We've assembled a bipartisan team of advisors, um, all of whom are part of our network of the oral history and other activities that we've done. Uh, you heard the voices of Ann Compton and Jim Lehrer. We have uh, national blue chip journalists who, they're both members of the Miller Center board, but are also working very hard on this project to get the word out to major news outlets and others, particularly as we turn past the conventions to the general election and then the transition. And so with that, I'm going to turn to Barbara to give you a quick overview of one presidential first year in particular, and then we'll open it up and we'll have about a half hour left for questions and answers. I've wanted to have something for you to take away uh, to remember this conversation and to perhaps prompt thoughts as you look towards November uh, and then into the next president's first year. Uh, so we uh, distributed a handout that says JFK's first year on the new frontier. Does everyone have a copy? Anyone missing a copy? Okay, thank you to my colleague Susan here in the front for handing those around. Uh, so I mentioned to you that our research team has looked at every president, first year, sometimes more than one first year, so that's 43 presidents, one first year at least. Sometimes a few of them didn't make it through the first year. Some, like William Henry Harrison, barely made it through the first month. Um, but we stopped to say, it, if you'll notice at the top of this outline, how should we go about looking at each of these presidents. Bill's explained very well the, the kinds of essays and policy white papers that are being written uh, that give advice to presidents who will be coming in into 2017, but also layering over that the lessons of history. 
Um, but as a political scientist uh, trained here at the university in the politics department, then called the Department of Government and Foreign Affairs, I wanted something a little bit more systematic than that that would cross over all of the administrations of 43 presidents. So uh, number one, as you'll see in this outline, is a set of variables, almost 10 of them, uh, both to look at ways that we can measure success, uh, but also predict success or failure or mediocrity in the first year. Obviously, one element of this is, is pre-White House experience. You know, what, what has this president done? Uh, or what has this presidential candidate done? Uh, one would hope related to government service. Um, circumstances facing the country at the time the president is running and takes office. What's the margin of victory? Is it a narrow victory? Is it barely a victory? In 2000, we know Bush v. Gore, uh, that Gore had almost 500,000 more popular votes than uh, President Bush, but did not win the uh, electoral vote. Uh, what, what kind of transition to power uh, is, is this president having, did this president have? Bill mentioned that we're reaching out to the transition teams already uh, for Secretary Clinton and Donald Trump. But perhaps most crucially, what's going to determine whether a president has a successful or a failed or a mediocre first year is going to be how he, or perhaps someday she, responds to the crises that occurred during that time. Uh, what are those problems? What are those crises? Are they existing as they come into office, or are they new? Uh, are they predictable? Are they not? Congress. Which party controls Congress? The party of the president? Uh, are the parties split? between the two houses of Congress and between uh, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue? Who controls the Congress? And obviously a, a, an important measure of how well the president's done is which kinds of pieces of legislation uh, did he pass uh, in that first year? Also, what major speeches were delivered? What do we remember? What, what vision was he able to give the people starting with his inaugural address and going through that first year? Uh, also, how did he relate to the media, particularly in the modern era in, in the, since the 1930s or even the 20th century of mass media? And then finally, a, a superb measurement, a metric for determining uh, how a president did in the first year was to take the approval rating as he came into office. Now, mind you, polling only begins in the modern era of the presidency. We really only have data for Truman onwards, but we've been able to look at the uh, opening approval rating of every president from Harry Truman onward. And then we tracked that over the first year. Then how did that his approval rating funnel through to the, the end of the first year? What was it like at the end of his presidency, whether that was by his, his death, by being turned out after a year, a, a, a first term, or being turned out uh, by the two-term limit? And then finally, we measured what has this president's record been like in terms of how we look back at it. Uh, so how do scholars rank that president, and how does the general public rank that president? So let me just give you a, a quick overview of, of how these variables shake out for President Kennedy. He obviously faced a lot of issues, uh, crises or near crises and problems, as you can see in the foreign affairs area, particularly the Cold War. This is the height of the Cold War as he comes in to office in 1960. And then in the, the domestic side, particularly the civil rights uh, era, is, has heated up through the 1950s, and he's going to face that in his first year. Certainly his speeches and his rhetoric were, were top-notch. Uh, the New Frontier analogy that he uses uh, comes to uh, label his presidency, perhaps until Mrs. Kennedy's use of the term 
Camelot overtakes it after the president's death. But this concept of inspiring people that the 1960s created a new frontier for the American people, uh, the, the American country and the world, but also the frontier of space. And that becomes part and parcel of his domestic and, and foreign policy agenda, uh, as we will see momentarily. But also his inaugural address, which is usually viewed as just behind Lincoln's second inaugural address and perhaps FDR's first as among the top three uh, in United States history, in part due to the superb wordsmithing of uh, his speechwriter Ted Sorensen, but we know that, the, that President Kennedy also contributed to that speech and by and large gave a, a superb rendition of it on that very, very cold January day, January 20th, 1961 in Washington after a, a major blizzard had hit the city the night before. Um, note, as, as we said, that he had one of the closest uh, popular votes uh, in presidential election history, just one-tenth of a percent, but he did have a, uh, not quite a landslide, but a significantly uh, higher margin in his electoral vote, uh, thanks to Lyndon Johnson being on the ticket with him and bringing in more than 20 electoral votes from Texas. Uh, but Kennedy comes into office with an approval rating of 72%. So isn't that interesting that he doesn't even win 50% of the popular vote, but he gets an approval rating uh, several weeks later, uh, coming into office of 72%. And what we've noticed over the modern uh, history of presidents is this is very typical, is from Truman up through uh, to, to Ford. Uh, every president coming in had an average approval rating of in the low 70s, 72, 73%. From Carter onward in the post-Watergate era all the way through Obama, that drops 10 percentage points on average. So presidents now on average are coming in at about 60 to 63%. So we already have a, a, a bit of a handicap that's um, making itself manifest to presidents now. But if you turn over to the, to the second side of your outline, um, you'll notice that at the very top there are the foreign crises. And of course, you saw on our video the, the Bay of Pigs uh, most severely for the president. The president had barely been there three months. This Bay of Pigs invasion, uh, as Jim Blair said in the narration, he blundered into it. But it was a plan that had been put on his desk and had come through the Eisenhower administration to uh, not have Americans land uh, in a, an invasion of Cuba, but rather to train Cuban exiles who had been exiled when Castro took over in the, in the late 50s. So to train a force through our CIA, then send them in on, um, on an invasion to try to remove Castro from power. And here we are more than 50 years later, and Castro and his brother are still, uh, still there, and his brother is still in power. Uh, and only just recently, of course, did uh, President Obama go to open up relations finally after all these many years. So this was just an utter disaster. Usually the term fiasco is associated with the Bay of Pigs. Kennedy had rejiggered the plan, uh, and doing so made it worse. Um, so everything from start to finish was a failure, uh, and more than uh, 1,200 of the people who had been invading, more than 100 of them had been captured, some of them had died. Uh, it was just another fiasco. But interestingly enough, Kennedy did a press conference uh, a few days later, and he was a master of the modern television medium. And at first, in, he, in his opening statement, he said to the press, well, I, I can't really talk about this. I can't, we'll, we'll do a study of this failure, but it has definitely been a failure. And finally, Sandra Van Oker, some of you might remember, a, a very, very well thought of uh, journalist, said, well, Mr. President, this is in all the papers, so you really need to talk about it here. And so Kennedy, pushed by Sandra Van Oker, said, well, this was a failure. This invasion was a failure. And he said, um, I am the ultimate 
responsible officer of this government, and I take full responsibility for this failure. His approval rating shot up from 72% as he entered the White House to 83%. And it only began to go down a bit in the, his third year, we think, because of his support, ultimately, of, of civil rights and the introduction of the Civil Rights Bill, so that by the time he was assassinated, it was down to 58%. But you'll see, by the end of the first year, it was still in, in the high 70s. So in, in, in terms of making mistakes, yes, but in terms of how he dealt with the mistakes and how he kept public opinion on his side, he was able to do so. So just I'll note then, um, penultimately, number nine here on this outline, is that I felt that I knew quite a bit about the President Kennedy. Uh, my mother had taken me to see him when he was running for office in our hometown of Louisville, Kentucky in 1960, and she would say, actually the setting was something like this, there was a podium, and she'd say to me until she passed, don't you remember I got there early and I put you and your brothers right in front of the podium so you could see him? And, and I'd say, well, mother, I was four, so I cannot remember the speech, but I can remember the balloons and the confetti, and I can remember the excitement, and then I would tease her, and I'd say, you turned me into a political scientist when I was four years old. Um, so I thought I knew a lot about Kennedy's presidency, but I actually wasn't aware of all of the domestic uh, pieces of his, his agenda that he passed. Look at this list. In addition to the things that we remember, like the space race and saying you're going to put a man on the moon uh, in the decade of the 60s, return him safely to Earth. Um, he gave that address to Congress in May, just a few weeks after the Bay of Pigs, we think in order to sort of dis distract us from the Bay of Pigs, uh, but also to say in the tapes that we have of him, telling the head of NASA, I don't really care about the scientific discoveries that we're going to have on our way to the moon. I just want to beat the Russians. I just want to get there first. So it was really a, a Cold War competition. We all know about the Peace Corps, and, and he signed an order creating the Peace Corps in March of 1961, so barely two, two months in. But also notice the, the USAID for helping countries abroad, for the Alliance for Progress to help countries south of the border. And then in this country, the Area Redevelopment Act, Agricultural Act, minimum wage increase, all the way up to $1.15. Um, Social Security amendments, um, look at the sign of the times here, uh, going from $33 a week, uh, a month, excuse me, to $40 a month. Um, Housing Act, but what is conspicuously absent from his first year agenda is civil rights. And he's afraid, he's afraid to uh, initiate a civil rights piece of legislation and send it to Congress for the very reason I suggested before in talking about Lyndon Johnson. And that is, although in number eight, you'll see that the Democrats had a huge majority in the Senate and in the House, but 20 or more of those senators, of the 65 Democrats, uh, when Kennedy came into office in 61, were from the South, and most of them were Southern senior segregationists, and they were not going to pass a, a, a piece of comprehensive civil rights legislation. So Kennedy didn't want to have a loss on his record in the first year, and second, he thought if he sucks up all the oxygen in a losing effort to try to get a comprehensive civil rights bill passed, Everything else on his agenda, domestic and foreign, will be stopped and stymied. So he did a calculation, but it takes him then till June of 1963 to see the handwriting on the wall, and he gives a very famous address from the Oval Office in which he says that civil rights is now a moral issue in our country, and it's, he said it raises issues that is they're old as the scriptures and as clear as the U.S. Constitution, and it's at that time then that he sends the Civil Rights Bill up to Congress. So finally, just where does Kennedy stand in history? 
Uh, you, I don't know whether you will be surprised or not, uh, given that he left office in November of 63 due to assassination with the 58% approval rating, uh, but he ranks number nine uh, um, on average among scholars, so that puts him in sort of the bottom of the top fifth of all presidents. And among the American people, uh, in 2010, Gallup did a poll and found out that he had an 85% approval rating of all of the last 10 presidents uh, mentioned by Gallup at that time, and that was higher than any president. Second was Reagan, third was Clinton, but Kennedy outstripped all of them. And some of that is due, no doubt, to his assassination and the fact that he created a, and his wife created around that a, a sense of martyrdom. Um, I just want to leave you then with the quotation that I think takes you from the colored photo at the bottom of, of page two here this triumph of his inaugural address and his inauguration, the first Catholic, to a month later, the middle photograph. He's in the Oval Office, a photographer is there. A phone call comes through and Kennedy doesn't dismiss the photographer. It was Jacques Lowe. And he hears Kennedy moan and say, oh my God. And he hears that Patrice Lumumba, uh, one of the leftist leaders, young leaders in Africa has been assassinated. And Kennedy sees the, the problems that that's going to create in, in Africa for the United States. And then the third picture, as you move to the right, look at, the, look at how he looks in April uh, as he goes out to speak to the press after the Bay of Pigs fiasco. So from this sort of vibrant, young, 43-year-old, youngest elected president of the United States uh, to already four months uh, into his presidency, uh, looking quite distraught and tired uh, and, and uh, bedraggled by the events of the world. So that he says halfway through uh, that first year, I knew that there were burdens that came to the president President of the United States, but I just couldn't have imagined how burdensome they would really be. Uh, and in his, after a second year, he said to a group of um, uh, journalists interviewing him in the White House, he said, you know, the problems uh, that the United States faces in 1962 are worse than I ever imagined, and the ability of the United States to address those problems, uh, that ability is way more limited than I had ever imagined. And then he followed that up by saying, but I suspect that every president has that feeling. So thanks so much, and we look forward um, to your questions. All right, who has a question? I know you've got questions. There's lots going on right now. Who's got a question? Can, I'm sorry. Can we <laughs> speak into the microphone? We're actually podcasting this so other people can hear it. So that name, name and class. You don't have to say your age, though. Uh, Jeff Marine, Bill's class. <laughs> when you look at the uh, surveys of who scholars think were the best presidents and who the public thinks were the best presidents, what have, who, who falls in the category of biggest disparity? Well, let me put it this way, that they've, they almost always agree on the greatest presidents, which could be somewhat different from the most popular or approval ratings. So scholars and the general public, if you give them the full range of 43 presidents, almost always put at the top, sometimes in varying order of these top three, but Lincoln, Washington, uh, and FDR. Um, I think that the biggest discrepancy, to your immediate point, is probably Kennedy himself. Um, and again, this is rated in terms of popularity versus greatness, so there's a little bit of difference, of perhaps apples and oranges. Um, but I think the American people who would say they approve of President Kennedy to the tune of 85% 
probably many of them, if you press them, would also say, and I think he was a great president. So I think what you're seeing, and I've, I've done a lot of studies of both the Kennedy administration and uh, Mrs. Kennedy in particular, Jacqueline Kennedy, and her efforts after the assassination, immediately within the week after her husband's horrific assassination before her very eyes in that motorcade in Dallas, um, went to the media and went to Theodore White of Life magazine, and it was there that she used that terminology of Camelot to describe her husband's presidency, and in my view also to get out in front of history and get out in front of scandals that she knew would probably be coming down the pike when people found out more about her husband as they inevitably did in, in the 1970s. But the, the way he died... Um, and the way television portrayed it, and the way Mrs. Kennedy got out in front of history and in front of journalists, but the way journalists and the media covered it, um, I, I think almost assure uh, his place in history in terms of how people look back, at least over the modern presidents, and say whether they approve or disapprove of them. And, and you might, again, look at the top three. Ronald Reagan also leaves office very popular. Uh, after his two terms, was given the second highest rating when asked in 2010 by Gallup, do you approve or disapprove of these last 10 presidents? Uh, and then followed very closely by Bill Clinton, uh, who also left office uh, with a very high popularity rating despite all the scandals surrounding him. Uh, thanks. Uh, Josh, 96. I'm, I'm curious about... Uh, Bill, you mentioned that you've been meeting or, or, or both with uh, Secretary Clinton's camp and you'll meet with Donald Trump's camp. I'm curious how the Miller Center distinguishes itself from the litany of other think tanks, Brookings being one of them, some on the left, some on the right, some in the middle, um, all of whom are advising on foreign policy, domestic policy, you know, all the things that you mentioned. How, how do you guys set yourselves apart from these other, these other think tanks? Um, three, three ways. Um, one starts with the person sitting to my right uh, and her colleagues. So we have a bench of at least uh, eight senior faculty, that is full-time faculty at the Miller Center and faculty at the university who know and understand the presidency as an institution. And even compared to the think tanks in Washington, and I you know, lived that world for 15 years, there is no greater concentration of talent and scholarship on the presidency anywhere in the country. Um, so that's number one. Number two, we are without question in my mind the most distinctive bipartisan and nonpartisan institution in the country. Um, Council on Foreign Relations, Brookings, there are a few others that try really hard to do that kind of balance. But precisely because we have done uh, deep analysis through the oral history project in particular, even more than the recordings project I would say, and not just because Barbara co-directs oral history. Uh, having built and established those relationships with the presidential libraries and the senior administration officials in both parties, we are really known and trusted by an elite group. And I can't tell you how valuable that is. In fact, I'm not sure that my colleagues here at the Miller Center know how valuable it is, because when you're in Washington, the question always is, uh, did you start with an answer, not a question like the game show Jeopardy? They think that the sort of answer's already on the board and you're cooking the books on the question. And these guys start with inquiry, real true inquiry and questions. How did you get to decisions? And that really builds credibility. And the third thing that really makes us distinctive uh, uh, with the think tanks, particularly in Washington, is being based at a university, and not just a university, but this university, you know, one founded by not just one, but three presidents. 
um, the you know, premier public university in the country. All of that together is a really special sauce. Uh, it doesn't mean that we'll be the only ones in the game. As you say, there are lots of others in the game. It just makes us really distinctive. And, and we're getting great resonance for that. So David Feltz, 86. Uh, two questions in two different ways. Um, one, maybe Barbara, if on whatever definition you would apply uh, from, for effectiveness in a presidency, who is the least well-known and most effective president that we've had? I'll, I'll stop there, and then I'll ask the second one if you don't mind. Effective president. Well, I think that almost by definition, and you said whatever definition you use, and I'll point back to these nine criteria, um, my sense is that that's how one, one definition is that how do you score in these areas? And because I think that we know well the presidents who scored highly in these areas, um, that we're going to come to them. And so we're going to say they're going to be the ones that we know about and hear about and know were effective by virtue of how they performed using these measurements. And then we can also look back to say, how does that work predictively when we look at what were their backgrounds? What did they done before they came to the White House? So if you put the, the three top greats, obviously, Washington, Lincoln, and FDR at the top of the great list, whether it's public or scholarly driven, um, you're going to say they're, they're going to be effective presidents, and that's why they're viewed as great. And they served in... As, as one uh, author calls it, you know, ex existential crises uh, from the founding. Would we continue as a country, the Civil War period, and the Great Depression and World War II? But let me circle back to Lincoln because we always talk about this at the Miller Center and our colleague Gary Gallagher, a great Civil War uh, historian from the History Department here, uh, has just both delivered a lecture for us on grounds as well as done an American Forum show with us, which I think has just been released and you can watch it uh, on, on our website uh, with Doug Blackman. Um, he says that Lincoln had the worst first year of any president. And... Richard and I were talking about this uh, in an interview the other day. You know, how can you get any worse than having the union break apart on you? Um, so, you know, whether we would say Lincoln was effective in that first year, you, you actually, by this definition, probably couldn't say he was effective in the first year, but he was effective in being able to guide the country through a civil war to victory for the Union and bringing the 11 states of the Confederacy back into the Union. And so my quick addition to that is agreeing with Barbara. And one of the things that I really learned from, so Gary Gallagher teaches in the History Department as the new director of the new NOW Center on the Civil War, is a great colleague. What he talks about in the first year is how Lincoln reached out to Democrats uh, still in, uh, in the North but also in the South, and said his priority in the first year was not ending slavery. In fact, he said, states come back in and you can keep slavery, which is really quite striking. He says, my priority is restoring union. Um, and the message was clear that it was directed towards Democrats in the North and South. And we have in the same set of essays 
Um, there's a dimension of Thomas Jefferson that we often forget, and people are starting to see more of it because of the play Hamilton, although Jefferson's not treated well in the play. But as Alan Taylor, who's in the history department here and gave a lecture on Jefferson's first year, reminds us, Jefferson was the first peaceful transfer of power from one party to another ever in human history. Right? It was only seven years before that the French Revolution tried to transfer power. There were no parties prior to uh, the American and French revolutions. And in France, when they tried to transfer power from one party to another, it turned bloody. And the Federalists really feared that Jefferson was a Jacobin, um, that he was going to come in and sort of take out the physically, violently remove office holders uh, who had been appointed by Federalists. And he didn't do that. And the Jeffersonians feared that the Federalists weren't going to give up power. And Jefferson was really quite successful in bridging that. And so the next video is going to be on Jefferson and Lincoln um, and the lesson of bipartisanship that both of them sent. My favorite undiscovered president is Chester Arthur. Does anybody know what Chester Arthur's great accomplishment was? First of all, how did he become president? James Garfield gets assassinated in his first year. Uh, there's a good argument that, Warren, uh, that um, William Henry Harrison and Garfield had the worst first year because they didn't survive it. Uh, but Ch Chester Arthur comes in, and he was not elected. Um, he was elected as vice president. He only serves one term, but he enacts civil service reform, which essentially depoliticizes the civil service. And not that many historians remember for him. Public doesn't so much. But it ends up being a really important thing in American history. And, and if we could circle back to Kennedy, I think if you did do a poll of people and say, just free association, what's the first thing you think about in Kennedy and what happened to him in the first year? They would all say, I'm sure, the Bay of Pigs. And they would view that as a failure. And I think that was coloring my judgment, even though I had been studying him since I was four years old. Um, so when I went, and, and he himself, when he was told by uh, his aides that journalists were considering writing a book about his first year after the first year, he said, well, who'd want to read a book about disasters? So he thought he had had just a terribly ineffective and indeed disastrous first year. So I had to wade through all of my preconceptions and even his understanding of his first year to go do this research and say, but look at all that he got passed through the Congress in that first year. That was actually a, a surprise to me. If I could, a second question? Oh, sorry. Oh, okay. Why don't you take one and then we'll give one and then we'll t take a second question and we'll lead, bundle them up. And lead, oh, okay, and lead middle digit. Hi, Lesia, class of uh, 91. Uh, you mentioned that you're briefing the transition teams, um, are they listening? And can you comment on your reception with both? Yeah, well, we haven't met yet with the Trump team, which is headed up by Governor Christie from New Jersey. Um, but we know that they're interested, they know about us and that they're interested in meeting with us and we just have to schedule it. Um, the, the Clinton campaign is, is definitely listening. I mean, some of that is my own, uh, I, I know a lot of the senior people because I served in the, Clinton, the first Clinton administration. This, in the first year of the second term of the first Clinton administration. Um, but for me, the really important audience in the Clinton team is not the senior people. It's the 35 to 50-year-olds who will come in. Um, they have unbelievable power in administration. They do the day-to-day -day work. The assistant secretaries who run the government tend to be in their 40s and 50s. They had been deputy assistant secretaries before. They're like the deans of a college. 
and them understanding the importance of the things that you really saw in the foreign policy video. Um, what is or what are the few key priorities that you can actually get accomplished? What is the nature of teamwork? What works and what doesn't work? What do you learn from your first failure? That's one of the most important lessons that we're trying to tease. And we're designing these almost as case study modules for the teams. Um, uh, what is the right process, particularly between the White House and the agencies? Um, and how do you think about politics? How do you think about managing that back and forth challenge between showing your base that got you elected, that you're delivering for them, but working in the middle, which is where, particularly in a narrowly divided Congress, you really need to get things done. And usually in first years, there's a little bit of both. There's usually a, a base accomplishment and a bipartisan accomplishment, historically. Those are the lessons we really want to communicate. And they've been, they've been you know, open ears, wide-eyed about this and really have engaged in a really uh, nice way. And we'll, we'll be briefing them all through the fall and then through the transition, hopefully on both sides. And how that filters down and filters up, just, you know, you, ne you never know. But we're, we, we think we have a pretty good chance. And we can take a couple as we're getting closer to 2.30. Why don't we take a couple? And I just, Lee, Lee back here had his hand up as well. So if, um, Jen, could you hand to Lee Middleditch? Well, let's get uh, this person. Why don't we get this gentleman and then Lee? And we'll take two or three and then go back and forth. Uh, kind of quick rapid fire questions. One. Uh, uh, who are you and what year? Oh, I'm not letting people Walter Culp, uh, class of 91. Okay. And uh, you've looked at the first year, which is rather interesting. Have you looked at the final year as someone's trying to figure out what their agenda is to get it through, and then more of a kind of operational? When you do an oral history of a president, uh, do you ask them to go by timeline or by event? Why don't we take Lee's and then come back to Dave, and then I'll turn to Barbara, because you, you get both of those. I'm from uh, Lee Middleditch, class of 1951, and for Barbara, uh, arguably, President Obama will go out of office without having suffered a scandal. Measured from President Nixon forward, uh, in general, there was a scandal in each presidency. I, I would like your comment as to whether those scandals took place towards the end of their term or specifically after the first year, and what element of hubris would be extant in those scandals. Well, we know that, uh, first of all, the scandals have different degrees, don't they? So Watergate has to be up at the top in terms of the worst scandal that almost removed that president from office uh, by impeachment and conviction. And before he could be convicted, a, a group, a, a delegation went down from Capitol Hill led by Barry Goldwater to the Oval Office to say to Mr. Nixon, if you don't resign, you will be impeached and removed. You will be convicted. We can't save you. Um, remember that Watergate is, happens in 19... No, these are just for the... Oh. I just wanted to remember those two questions. Okay. That, that Watergate happens as Nixon is trying to figure out how he can be reelected. And so those operatives who are working for him, while there's been lots of there are lots of things that they've been engaging in, I'm sure, through his first term. It's as they look to getting a second term that they begin to uh, infiltrate into Democratic headquarters. Um, 
So I think there, there's that kind of scandal. There's the, there's the attempt to, there's the political scandal, the attempt to stay in office. That's the Watergate, Richard Nixon model. Then there's the personal. That's the Bill Clinton model. And heaven knows what Bill Clinton was engaging in through the first year, but we know that it caught up with him by the second term, uh, and that is the Monica Lewinsky scandal, which certainly threatened his presidency, uh, but he was not convicted, uh, impeached but not convicted in the Senate. Um, then we have, I would say, the smaller scale variety that, that come to bear in the, that first year, can come to bear, something like Travelgate in the Clinton years, the Vince Foster suicide that causes all sorts of conspiracy theories to this day, uh, the Jimmy Carter, Burt Lance, uh, impropriety on the part of an aide. Um, now you mentioned hubris. Um, I'm not so sure sometimes it's as much hubris, although I certainly think for those high-end scandals, Watergate, hubris. The Jack Kennedy, Bill Clinton personal scandals, hubris. Hubris that you think you're not going to get caught. And Kennedy didn't, at least in those three years that he served, though there were, it was getting close, the trail was getting closer to him. And it's unclear if he had lived and gone into a second term whether that really would have caught up with him. So some of it is, is that. So some of it's political hubris, some of it's personal hubris. And then I think other times it, it's, it's naivete uh, it, it, that Carter, for example, explained about how he was fitting in or not fitting in uh, inexperienced, naivete, these outsider candidates who come into the office. And I would add to that, bring their, I'll use it as a pejorative term, but sometimes it applies, bring their cronies with them. So I would say Burt Lance is a crony example of somebody who comes, a, um, Webster Hubble coming with, with the Clintons. Um, we could name person after person in the Richard Nixon administration. So I think you're, you're on to something about categorizing them in that way. But um, sad to say, for our country's history, they actually happen across <laughs> the, the first year, the first term, and sometimes into the second. Or sometimes things that have occurred in the first term catch up with the president in the second. Did you want to? No, I wanted okay. just to remind you of the other questions. Right, so fourth years. Um, as you can imagine, this has been... Um, a, a very labor-intensive, time-consuming effort to do simply the first years of all 43 presidents. So we have not only taken that time to do that, but we now want to get into the weeds and really bear down and drill down and do as many correlations on those as we can. So we really want to harvest the, the data that we have gathered from that. So the answer to have we gone on to the last year to do the same kind of drill down, no, not yet. But um, I had a series of questions that came from the media at Christmas time, first from Politico and then um, from HuffPost Live. Um, actually did an online show with them that you can find on HuffPost Live. And then you can go back to Politico as well. Um, they asked the question directly, who had the best and worst last years, 
in office. So in doing light research like that, I have done so. And then as you also point, you could see on this uh, outline, in looking at the president's incoming approval rating, and I mentioned that we did end of first year approval rating and then end of presidency approval rating. So for some of those presidents who served through one term, the last year of that term or the last year of two terms, we do have that data that has been gathered, but not to the extent of doing every variable for the last year in office. But again, if you want sort of an overview um, from myself and other scholars, you can go to the Politico piece and just Google last years of presidents Politico and then HuffPost Live. You can find uh, my comments uh, in, in the on, online uh, conversation, which was done back just at Christmas time. And then the, um, the oral history, um, do we do them chronologically or on key issues? We have just an amazing research team at the Miller Center who not only gathered all this data for the 43 presidents um, for the first year project, but they also provide briefing books for us, the interviewers, and for the interviewees for all of the projects, for all of the oral history projects that we do. And there is a timeline. That's the very first thing that you will come to in the briefing book. And by the way, we put those online. So when we finish a project and we release the interviews that have been cleared by the interviewees and deeded over to the Miller Center and therefore can be released, uh, we put those online and we also put the timelines because those are not cop that's not copyright material. We have developed that ourselves. So that is online. But your question is really a good one about how do we start a conversation with, let's say, Andy Card. It's, a, it's always a combination. We like to tell them that, that they are the professor, we're the seminarians, we're the students, and they're sitting at the head of the table, and we want to prompt them with ideas, with timelines, with topics, with questions, and we also send them questions ahead of time. But we want them to go where they want to take the conversation. But I will also say that for particular kinds of events, like 9-11, in the Bush 43 uh, oral history, virtually for everybody who was with the president in the presidential administration on September 11th, 2001, we ask them to do what we call a tick-tock. And we just throw out the question, tell us about 9-11. And it's like pressing a button and it pours out of people. They remember that day like no other in their lives. I just want to say one thing about Barbara and her colleagues um, as we wrap up. There's just an incredible team of folks, uh, not just having done these oral histories, but they're studying of the presidency. Uh, and they all come to it, not necessarily, many of them come to it with an interest in a particular president. Most of them come to it with an interest in a set of questions and issues. So Barbara is an expert on the judiciary and the judiciary and the presidency and constitutional law, political scientists the PhD essentially in constitutional theory. So when you ask the question about fourth years, no, they haven't done a systemic study of fourth years, but Barbara went and did a systemic study of every uh, Supreme Court judicial appointment done in a fourth year, fourth year going back to the first presidency and wrote several very influential pieces in the Washington Post and elsewhere about um, what was consistent across those and how this current debate sits in presidential history. And precisely because Barbara in particular is trusted by people uh, on both sides of the aisle, that was a very influential piece. Um, you know, uh, Dick Cheney spent five days with Barbara in Jackson Hole two summers ago. 
Uh, Andy Card spent, uh, what, two days last year and then another day of interview in another setting on the oral history. When Barbara writes something, the trust that she's built with those people, and in this case, she argued that this is really anomalous, that a Senate would hold up confirmation for this long a period of time. It's never happened before in a presidential fourth year. People take that very seriously. It goes back to your point is what is our added value in the world of think tanks? We have we have a really extraordinary high credibility because of um, Barbara and her colleagues. So just as ending on a final Thank note Thank you. There. I've been so and busy. I forgot that I had done that research. <laughs> that was, what, four months ago, right? Three months yes. ago. So anyhow, I just it's a real credit to the team and to this university for producing people like Barbara. All right. That's our time. Please join me in thanking our speakers one more time. Thank you.